Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in James chapter 4. A Norwegian statistician sought out to compile a list of all the wars that had ever been fought. He discovered that in 5,587 years of recorded history, there have been 14,601 wars. That's an average of a little over 2.6 wars every year. So it's rather obvious that throughout the ages, war has been the rule on earth, and peace has been the exception. That's sad. But what is sadder still for us as Christians is the fact that conflict has always been a part of the community of faith. Cain couldn't get along with Abel. Lot's herdsmen couldn't get along with Abraham's herdsmen. Absalom couldn't get along with his father David. The disciples couldn't get along. They were always fighting about who was the greatest. The Corinthians couldn't get along. They divided up into factions and actually took each other to court. Paul had to warn the Galatians not to bite and devour each other. The Ephesian church had to be admonished about spiritual unity. And even the church at Philippi, the only church in the New Testament that Paul doesn't have anything negative to say in terms of their behavior, had two ladies that couldn't get along. In chapter 4, verse 2, he had to call them out. He said this, I urge Judea and Sintichi to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, if you had a personal problem, how would you like me to call you out in church? That's pretty bad. But when you get called out in the Bible, and it's going to last forever, that's sobering. Some churches are better known for their internal conflict than for their external conquests for Christ. Have you ever wondered why that is? Well, James asked the same question in James chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, what is the source, the cause, the root issue of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now notice that phrase, among you. He's talking about conflicts among men and women of faith. And he calls them quarrels and conflicts. The word quarrels has the idea of wars. The word conflicts, the idea of battles. The word quarrels suggests big clashes and conflicts, the little skirmishes, all levels of combat he's talking about. And he's asking, why can't you get along? What is the cause of the combat in your life? And immediately he gives the answer in the last half of verse 1. Is not the source, here it comes, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Don't you wish he hadn't said that? Don't you wish he had said, the reason you're having conflicts is the other people you have to deal with. I mean, you're okay. They're the problem. But James doesn't say that. He points right at you and me. And he says the number one reason that we're at odds with other people is inside of us. 
It's our desires. It's our pleasures. The conflicts on the outside are initiated by a conflict on the inside. And the perpetrator, the trigger man, the thing inside of you that is launching the scud missiles at other people, James says, is your pleasures, your wants, your desires. Now, what desires is he talking about? Well, we can pick out three in the first four verses. The first is the desire for possessions, the desire to have. Notice verse 2. You lust and do not what? Have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot what? Obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, that word lust is a neutral term in the Bible. It just means to want or to desire. In fact, it's used in Galatians 5.17 of the Spirit of God, which tells us that desires are not wrong. Most of your fundamental desires are God-given. God has given you the desire for food, social interaction, sex, provisions, comfort. The problem is not that we want those things. The problem is that we want them too much or too soon or in the wrong way or at the expense of someone else or something else. We like to call that the American dream. Americans are programmed to believe it's one of our unalienable rights. We say we have the right to life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. But you know, the desire for possessions, even when it's achieved, doesn't bring happiness. Howard Hughes was asked, how much would it take to make you happy? And he said, just a little bit more. You see, when it comes to possessions, the thrill wears off quickly. How many people here are still excited about what you got last year for Christmas? How many even remember what you got? How many have already put it in a garage sale? And don't raise your hand. How many are considering regifting it this year? <laughs> See, if you base your life on comparing what you have with other people, you will never be happy. Because about the time you catch up with the Joneses, they refinance. For some people, the American dream has become the American nightmare. Because not only does it fail to make you happy, but as James tells us here, it wages war in your members. Now, how does that happen? Well, when I let my selfish pleasures sit on the throne in my life and reign, my pleasures would rather fight than switch. When I let my selfish pleasures take over, they will fight for satisfaction. And they will declare war. And the soldiers in this war, James says, are the members of my body. My tongue my hands, my feet, striking out to get my way. 
Gallup poll says that 56% of all marriages that end in divorce do so over money problems. Finances are a source of conflict. I want it, but we can't afford it. But I want it. We can't afford it, but I want it. You see, when we are driven by materialism, when we are driven by the desire to acquire, we envy and we scheme and we quarrel and we kill. Did James say kill? You know, today, when we hear about an unsolved murder, who do we almost immediately put at the top of the suspect list? A family member. I read this week that the majority of people who get arrested for hiring an undercover hitman are the spouse of the intended victim. And why do they do that? I was told long ago, if you want to find the real story, follow the money. Why do they do that? To get the whole estate. Why do they do that? To get the insurance money. And even when it's not a family member, it is typically a theft-related murder. We have a legal term called a crime of passion. I would suggest that all murders are crimes of passion. I so passionately want what you have that I will kill to get it. You say, well, Dan, I would never do that. Well, let me ask you this. Have you thought about it? Because John says in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And we may be too Christian to say drop dead, but our heart is screaming that very message. That's where we get the phrase, if looks could kill. You see, when what I want is of more value to me than the person who is standing in the way, that creates conflict. And the source of that conflict is not that person. The source of the conflict is in me. It's cute when little kids learn their first words. We usually like to get them to say dada or mama. But there's a word that they learn very early on that you don't teach them. And it's a four-letter word, mine. They learn it and they learn it well. You take two kids and one toy and put them in a room and you have conflict. It's mine. It's mine. And some people grow up and become adults and that's still their favorite word. It's mine. God intended for us to love people and use things. When we reverse that and love things and use people, we will always have conflict. So the first desire is the desire for possessions. The second desire is the desire for pleasure. That's the desire to feel. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your 
pleasures. That word pleasures is a Greek word you would recognize. It's the Greek word hedonai, from which we get our word hedonism. That's the philosophy that says, let your glands be your guide. Whatever is pleasurable is good. It's the motto of our society. If it feels good, do it. In fact, our society applauds that motive. The first question we expect you to ask is, what's in it for me? We don't expect people to give. We expect them to come in to get the desire for pleasure. Now, let me clarify. It's not wrong to enjoy life. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy all things. But when pleasure becomes the driving motive in your life, you're asking for conflict. You show me a family where the husband is saying, I want to stay home and watch the game. And the wife is saying, I want to get the whole family together and go out and look at Christmas decorations. And the kids are saying, we want to have our friends over and play. The table is set for conflict. One of my pleasures in life is a hot shower. Love to take a hot, steamy shower. Several years ago, I went to Dr. Martin. He said, I want you to, you you got some sinus problems. I would like you to stay in a hot shower a little longer. So I now have a medical excuse (laughs) for pleasure. Nothing wrong with taking a hot shower. But if I stay in the shower all day long, I'm going to have conflict. See, if I make life all about me, my pleasure, my satisfaction, my happiness, then my relationships will be marked by conflict. And then there's a third desire I see here, and that is the desire for prestige, the desire to be somebody. Look at verse 4. You adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world. What attracts me to be a friend of the world? Acceptance, applause, popularity, prestige. I get to be somebody with a capital S. And you know what that's based on? James points it out in verse 6 when he says, God is opposed to the proud. The issue behind that is my pride, which is really the underlying issue behind all of these desires. The problem with I want to have things and I want to feel pleasure and I want to be somebody, is I. Have you ever been having an argument and you knew you were wrong? And you wouldn't admit it? Am I alone in this? 
Why won't you admit it? Pride. Pride is a destructive force in all of our relationships. Business, church, home. Because pride views me and my desires as more important than you and your desires. And you know what one of the telltale signs of pride is? You're not going to like this because it's convicting. You know what one of the signs of pride is? Look at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. One of the signs of pride is prayerlessness. Because when I don't pray, what am I saying? God, I don't need you. I can handle this myself. And that's pride. When I pray, I am humbly expressing my dependence upon the Lord. When I don't pray, I am pridefully expressing my independence. So if you want to measure your pride this morning, just look at your prayer life. When you are not on your knees, you will likely find yourself on your pedestal. And the pedestal is a lonely place to be because pride always divides. So what have we learned? If there's a war taking place in your relationships, it's because there is a war taking place inside of you. A war between your desires and God's desires, between your will and God's will, between your wants and God's wants. You see, the desire to have possessions, the desire to feel pleasure, the desire to be somebody and have prestige is at odds with God and it is, it is at odds with other people and so you will always have conflict. That's why verse 4 says, when you do this, you make yourself an enemy of God. You make yourself hostile toward God, and you also have hostility toward people because he says you're fighting and quarreling. Now next week, we're going to continue in this passage and see how to resolve our conflict with God. This morning, I want to talk about how to resolve our conflicts with each other. Now, Jesus highlighted the importance of this in Matthew chapter 5 when he said this. He said, If you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, that illustration comes out of Jesus' world in the first century. The parallel today would be this. You come to church like you did this morning. You sing, here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. And the Spirit of God whispers in your ear, what about the fight you had with Tom a few days ago? You come here with your hands raised in worship and the Spirit of God whispers in your ear and says, what about that animosity you're carrying in your heart toward the elders? What about that 
staff person you can't stand, the tall, bald guy. Or maybe the Spirit of God whispers in your ear and says, what about the way you talk to your wife and your kids this morning? Ouch. What do you need to do when that happens? Well, Jesus doesn't say, pray about it for about a week and maybe they'll forget. Jesus doesn't say, keep worshiping and everything will be fine. Jesus says, first, that's a priority word, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and worship God. You see, reconciliation takes priority over worship. That's how important it is. God says you need to restore that relationship horizontally before you continue that relationship vertically. So the question is, how do we do that? And I've given you in your bulletin this morning a peace plan. I want to walk you through it in closing. The first step is pursue the other party. Pursue the other party. Jesus says, leave, go, and first be reconciled. Unreconciled relationships constitute emergency priorities. This is a spiritual 911 condition. You're not to handle them casually. You're not to handle them at your leisure. You're not to do it when you get around to it. You're not to put it off. Don't delay because delays only deepen resentment. When it comes to conflict, time heals nothing. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And that's why Jesus says, go. Don't wait for the other person to come to you. You take the initiative. You go to that person and say something like, we need to talk. We need to have a peace conference because your relationship matters to me more than anything else. Pursue the other party. Second, the E is for empathize with their feelings and perspective. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And that word, look out, is the Greek word scopus. It shows up in our words like telescope, microscope. What do you use a telescope for? What do you use a microscope for? You use them to pay careful attention. And Paul is saying you need to pay careful attention to the other person's interests and perspective and feelings. Let me give you three don'ts I've learned from experience. When you go to someone and talk to them about a conflict and there are feelings involved, don't use your tongue, use your ears. Listen to them. You're trying to understand their perspective. You're trying to understand their feelings. You have to listen. Secondly, don't tell them that they shouldn't feel that way. I tried that with my wife. It doesn't work. 
don't tell them that they shouldn't feel that way. They do feel that way. And you need to understand how they feel. And thirdly, don't interrupt them to try to offer a quick solution. Guys do this all the time. We want to fix it. You don't even listen to the feelings of your wife. You want to fix it. Don't interrupt them. Try to fix the problem. Listen. Take into account their concerns, their hurts, their perspective. My wife and I had a conflict this week. Whatever I'm preaching on usually happens in my life, so this is a rare exception. We had a conflict. But Lisa and Brandon were downstairs watching TV, and I was upstairs, and I thought, you know, I, I think I'm going to get a jump start on this Christmas decoration thing. So uh, I, I put the decorations up on the mantle and a few other places and started working in the great room putting up decorations, and I was really patting myself on the back thinking, here I am being a heroic husband and father. Maybe I can use this as an illustration of, on Father's Day about how to be great. So I'm putting up all the decorations and going, you know, and Lisa comes up. And I meet her at the steps, and I want to, sh- look what I did, expecting that she was just going to glow all over me. She got upset. She was hurt. What was the problem, guys? From my perspective, I was being sacrificial. From her perspective, I was being selfish. And when I sat down and understood her position, I realized that for me, Christmas decorations is getting it done. For her, Christmas decorations is doing it together. So I'm out here doing it by myself, and I'm being selfish. You see, for her, it's about the journey. For me, it's about the destination. But you have to listen to the feelings of the other person. See through the perspective of the other person to resolve that conflict. We still don't have the decorations up. but we're doing great, right, honey? (laughs) The A, attack the problem, not the person. You'll never fix the problem if all your energy is going into fixing blame. And when you're talking to a person in a conflict, you have to be very careful with your words. How you say something is as important as what you say. We entered into the Iraq war looking for weapons of mass destruction. Personally, you don't have to look very far to find one. You've got one in your mouth. It's your tongue. And if you enter into this kind of conversation using your tongue for name-calling, you're going to have World War III. If you enter into this kind of discussion using your tongue for labeling, you're look, just like your father, you're going to have World War III. If you use your tongue for sarcasm, you're going to have World War III. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You've got to think about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. One of the most convicting verses for me in the Bible is Ephesians 4.29. It says, Let 
no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. How many? None. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. The C. Compromise as much as possible. Be a bridge builder. Take responsibility for your contribution to the conflict. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's not always possible, but make sure you have done everything to bring it about. Now, sometimes you can't compromise. The prodigal's father didn't compromise to the point of living in the pig pen. But when his son turned around, he ran and embraced him and probably got mud all over himself. Jude tells us in verse 3 of his letter to contend earnestly for the faith, which tells us some things are worth fighting for. The foundational doctrines of the Christian faith are worth fighting for. I had a guy in this church one time who wrote me a bunch of writings that he had on his theology, and it was obvious his theology didn't match up with my theology or the Bible. And uh, he came to me one day and, and said, unless you're willing to sit down and negotiate your position on salvation, I'm leaving this church. And I said, bye. Because you see, that's not negotiable. That's a hill I will die on. There are some things worth fighting for. And I might add this, even when something appears to be negotiable, it may not be the right thing for you to compromise. Some people like to make lists of do's and don'ts. And then they emphasize them so much that their list becomes their Christianity. Their list of do's and don'ts becomes non-negotiable. And to be on their team, you have to play by their rules. That is legalism. And legalism is always divisive. And you have to be careful that you're not compromising to a person's legalism. I had someone come to me once and tell me they were leaving the church because I said it was okay to drink wine. I said, the Bible says it's okay. Jesus drank wine. Jesus made wine. The good stuff. Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stuff. I said, the Bible says it's okay. He said, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't want my pastor saying it's okay. And I said, well, then I think you've got the wrong pastor. Because I do care what the Bible says. And I'm not going to tell you something different just to have peace with your legalism. Augustine said, in essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, there must be liberty. In all matters, there must be love. Even when I disagree with someone, 
I have to do so with an attitude of grace. Even when I disagree with someone, I have to be careful that I don't have a contentious spirit. One of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3.3 is that he is not quarrelsome. And 2 Timothy 2.25 says that with gentleness we are to correct those who are in opposition. See, even when we strongly disagree, we're not to be disagreeable. We're to do so in love. And then the final E, emphasize reconciliation. When you go to this person, the goal is not winning or losing. The goal is reestablishing harmony. The goal is reconciliation. Sometimes we can't resolve our differences. Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15 are said to have a sharp disagreement over the fitness of Mark for ministry. They didn't resolve their difference, but we have to resolve the hurt feelings and the misunderstandings and the wrong attitudes. And our problem is when we go for these peace talks, a lot of us go with our goal being restitution. Restitution means I'm going to get back whatever I lost. Restitution says I'm going to go and get even. That can't be your goal. Your goal has to be reconciliation. Reconciliation is restoring that relationship. And reconciliation will always cost you something. If it doesn't cost you something physically, it will cost you something relationally or spiritually. For example, if you and I have a conflict, and I'm so upset at you that I tell eight other people how awful you are, and then you call me and we meet and we kiss and make up, we hug, we're doing great, guess what? Eight other people think you're a jerk. We may not be able to fix that. They may continue to think that. But you don't come saying, I've got to have restitution. You come saying, my goal is reconciliation. And by the way, if you find yourself in that situation, you're in good company because 1 Peter 2.23 says, while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. They said he was an illegitimate child. They said he was a drunk. They said he had a demon. Peter says he didn't revile back. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus was mistreated. Jesus was nailed to a cross in order to reconcile you and me cost him something. And so you can bank on it. Reconciliation will cost you. But it is God's priority for God's people. And we have to make it our priority. And so as we close this morning, I'm going to give you some homework. A simple homework assignment. You can do it right where you're sitting right now. It's this. Humble yourself 
and pray. And say, the Lord, Lord the, 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 the reason I'm having conflicts in relationships is inside of me. And I want to confess my selfish desires to you and get that right. And then having done that, I would challenge you to pray this. Lord, give me the courage to go to my brother or sister today and have a peace talk. Lord, give me the courage, give me the love, give me the brokenness to drop everything I'm doing and go to that person and say, I want to be reconciled. Would you do that today? Would you obey Jesus by going? Thank you.